You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, Annie. How are you doing? Good. It's a lovely day outside after the wild and woolly weather we've had. We always start this program with weather reports. <laughs> and and not not informed by the Bureau of Meteorology, but uh, just pure experience. Uh, wild and woolly. 30 degrees in the middle of the night and wild winds that are still balmy. But today it seems to be just a little bit balmy, but not unbearable. Yeah, I guess the, the only pleasure that I can take from having to, you know, an enforced uniform of uh, long pants, long black pants in particular, is that, you know, I'm working inside malls. That's something, so, you know, air conditioning for air what conditioning it's worth. Air conditioning for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not the same heat that it was sort of through, you know, summer last year, but gosh, it's humid. Yeah, it's odd. Really humid. Well, Melbourne's not has not been previously known for its humidity, but yeah. you know we might be having to uh, change our uh, stance on the weather. But uh, more importantly, we've got some interesting stuff for uh, Solidarity Breakfast listeners today. Uh, you actually had the chance to speak to a character called Tom, who was involved in the incredible uh, Invasion Day rally, marshalling. Uh, uh, process. Uh... Yeah, and he had some really fascinating reflections on that front because it was actually his first time marshalling ever. Um, and yeah, so we had a, we had a, a long and you know hearty chat about that, and some some really fascinating uh, productive discussions came out of that. Yeah, for people who weren't there. You may not have realised this, but uh, because of COVID, they put people into lots of uh, bundles of 100 people and they started the march much earlier before they'd even done the speeches because they needed to distribute the people right across the city. It was quite bizarre. It was quite unusual and an uh, unprecedented event, I'd have to say. Yeah, and I think you'll find that there was actually a lot of stuff that we can take away from how successful that event was that we can apply to other things like industrial action or strike activity or future protests, um, environmental or otherwise. And also the incredible usefulness of 3CR because uh, further down, from the top, it was possible to relay the broadcast to all those marches further down in the uh, a march. You would have missed out on the speeches and would have probably been a little bit unsure of what was actually going on. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, we... It was a big uh, effort. Yep. More, more power to 3CR's yep. arm. We're going to move on and talk about uh, saving Lake Knox, where we're going to talk to... Uh, uh, Darren Wallace about that. We're going to talk to. Um, oh, you've got a great piece about GameStop. If you, nobody, 
Yeah, look, GameStop has been kind of doing the rounds in the media for the while, but um, I, I thought I'd take a bit of a different stance on it. Now that it's really gone through the cycle, um, there was a lot of fallout, a lot of weird fallout, a lot of strange people crawling out of caves and giving their opinion. And I think it, it actually speaks to something a little bit more pervasive. Um, so anyway, I, I guess you could say I'm it's, it's kind about, of wrapping it, it up. It's a little yeah. bit like GameStop is, it seems to be a kind of a, uh, the ordinary people storming the financial barricades, right? Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. So that's and, a very yeah. interesting element. So we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Yep. Um, yep. And then, I, and then you uh, have a, uh, well, you have a discussion with uh, Samira. Well, no, no, oh, sorry. no, no, it's not a discussion. No, uh, I just thought we'd lighten it up with a few female voices. And Samira was <laughs> Samira was at the uh, a rally, a little demonstration. It was actually relatively large in a sense. It was a, a, it was sort of domestic, but it was sort of like a hundred people were outside uh, Treasury Place on Tuesday, and it was an it's part of an ongoing series of uh, demonstrations of support for refugees who have been uh, some of them have been released from. Uh, park hotel but there's still some more that are still there these are medivac uh, refugees and of course then there's the overall issue of refugees and how they're being handled or mishandled in Australia Hmm. and being used as political hot potatoes except of course they're real people Hmm. and those demonstrators are the ones who are making it clear to everyone that they are real people and they went from Treasury Place down to uh, Home Affairs offices and then move up to park outside the uh, Lincoln Park where they uh, congregate outside Park Hotel. So it's an ongoing uh, event uh, of solidarity. Uh, and there are other ones as well. And uh, to remind you that there's a really big one, uh, Free the Medivac Refugees, uh, 2pm Saturday, 13th of February, next Saturday. So big big deal. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. uh, anyway, Samira is, is uh, a very interesting uh, voice to have on the radio because she is uh, a person who has come to this country under these circumstances, but uh, she's now fighting a good fight for the people who are in these uh, hotels. Uh, so I thought I'd bring her voice to the uh, radio. Uh, I follow up with uh, Tony Birch, who uh, was part of a book room event uh, who last week launched their podcast of monthly author talks. Uh, they've also got a website, so it's called Book Room. Uh, it's run by the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. And, of course, Tony Birch is a uh, uh, First Nations writer. Uh, uh, but, you know, he's a writer in general. Uh, he's got a mixed heritage, in fact. Hmm. Um, but it's fascinating because he gives us a little reading from his book, uh, The White Girl. Uh, and at the end, if Jacob wakes up, we're going to talk to Jacob about Socialist Alliance's up to, upcoming talk, How Capitalism Causes Racism. There's a lot to unpack in such a talk as well, because normally it's it's quite delineated. So I'm very keen to hear that little end bit of it. But um, yeah, I guess without further ado, we'll just get into the meat of the matter. Free Palestine Melbourne is holding an online forum exploring the implications of a number of Arab nations normalising relations with Israel while it continues to occupy Palestine and oppress the Palestinian people. The forum will explore the implications for justice for Palestinians, for geopolitics and peace in the region, and for the expanding gulf between autocratic rulers and their people. Speakers include Dr Khaled Hroub from Northwestern University in Qatar, Dr Ahmed Jamil Azam from Berzet University, 
and Palestinian and local author, playwright and activist, Dr. Samah Sabawi. Join us the 10th of February, Wednesday night at 8pm. Register at fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. That's fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. So, Jordan, uh, you were speaking to Tom about uh, his experience as a marshal. Yeah, uh, I think there was so much that happened on that Invasion Day rally, and it was such a good success. It was so fascinating to casually run into a marshal from the event. (laughs) And, of course, I just had to have them, uh, you know, well, basically a few minutes with them to have a chat. And it was, I mean, I'll, I'll just let Tom speak for themselves. My name's Tom. I'm currently an unemployed teacher's aide and I work with the Unemployed Workers' Union. And I'm a committed socialist and committed to social justice, overcoming capitalism, all that good stuff. So I was working with Workers' Solidarity, which is a network of left-wing activists supporting um, strikes often, but also kind of expanding a little bit into supporting um, rallies as well. And so we were working with Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, who are the organisers of the rally, to help keep the rally COVID safe because it's a rally taking place in quite unique circumstances. So we wanted to make sure we were keeping people in 100-person groups, keeping everything COVID safe. The other side of that is also it's a rally with um, a lot of Indigenous folk. So there's a need to be a form of you know, protection for Indigenous people, you know, so we're making sure we're keeping tabs on the police, breaking up any fights, you know, between left-wing groups, um, as sometimes happens, and also protecting the rally from fascists, so making sure fascists can't disrupt what is an important day of mourning and resistance for the Indigenous community. So you were explicitly a marshal or an organiser in the rally? Well, I was a, a marshal. There were some organisers working in Worker Solidarity that helped coordinate the different marshal groups, but I was quite new to marshalling. I've been to many, many protests, but it was my first time marshalling. So, yeah, I was under the uh, excellent direction of some great organisers working with Worker Solidarity. Cool. So you, you'd never done marshalling before, and mm-hmm. then suddenly you're coming into probably the biggest protest that has happened since second lockdown. What's that like? It's pretty wild. You know, it was, I mean, it was amazing to to see and very heartening to see people coming out in solidarity with Indigenous people in uncertain times, you know, where the government was, I think, being fairly cynically critical of, of protests and, and, and wanted to clamp down on protests, even now that things are in Australia quite safe. It was, I think, for me, an important way to break the seal on protest, you know, to to get people out in the streets again protesting, I think is a really important thing going into this year so we can normalise protest and resistance as we move into 2021. What was your actual movements on the day? Well, we had some really excellent training up in Carlton Gardens on the Saturday before Invasion Day, and we basically went through uh, lots of different things, ways to de-escalate a situation if there was any conflict. We... Or got organised into our different teams. 
We got a lot of support. We could ask questions. We even did a little bit of self-defense class uh, in case there were any <laughs> incidents with the fascists, which is really just a, you know, just a backup. We were there to really de-escalate, you know, anything that would come up and, and how to direct people correctly and how to, I guess, yeah, the logistics of, of organizing thousands of people in the street was all very well prepared ahead of time. You could tell the organisers of the marshalling, you know, had figured out, you know, how to get people, you know, reasonably quickly and easily into 100-person groups in a very busy, quite chaotic environment. And, yeah, I think the training was excellent and then we felt confident going into um, Invasion Day and knowing what we were doing. We had some uh, training, some repeat training in the morning, which went over the same lessons for some people that couldn't come on Saturday and to kind of re-emphasise it for people that, that had and then we all went together and went to our designated areas of the rally to, to marshal, um, feeling confident in um, what we were doing. Did you get the sense that this was something that was going to be a different event through the way it was organised? I mean, I've definitely been to rallies that have had marshals before. You see them at pride rallies, you see them at you know refugee rallies, especially when they're larger with you know police liaison at, at um at big climate rallies and um and marshals as well. So I've definitely seen marshals in action and know the importance of their role on the day. Yeah, I think I don't think I had any like strong expectations. I don't think it was going to be radically different from another protest in terms of the general dynamics of lots of people in the street, but obviously during COVID it was a the need to keep people in 100-person groups was a unique logistical challenge. The uniqueness of of it being an Indigenous rally as well. So there's, you know, obviously issues of um, racist um, violence and police oppression and, and, and the fascist in particular for that rally. So there was a special need to consider the yeah, need to keep Indigenous people safe, which is definitely, yeah, a unique thing of that rally. Unfortunately, I didn't actually attend the Innovation Day rally in person. Sure. Um, I had to work on that day, but I did mm-hmm. listen to the broadcast. And one of the things that was particularly striking for me was that for every speaker that was held, there was one or two people from the broad organisations who would come in every once in a while and remind people, stay in your groups, keep hand sanitizer on, make sure you're wearing your masks... This this obviously sounds like it was very much a concerted effort to prevent giving the state any reason to bounce back. Do you agree with that? What, what other comments do you would you have there? No, absolutely. As part of the training, actually, you know, they were saying we want to do the right thing. We want to keep people COVID safe. You know, we're, we're activists. You know, we care about social justice. We want to do what is socially right, and that is keeping people healthy and safe. And also we wanted the government did not have a reason to to criticise us and we were very conscious of any bad press that was going to come and try and create a, a bit of a panic uh, or kind of a scandal around it. And so we were very conscious to to run the event very well and, and keep everyone safe so as to avoid any yeah, bad press as well. So that was a... It was both keeping people safe and making sure that, you know, the right-wing trash media couldn't um, make a field day of it. Did it go smoothly? From the, my perspective where we were, I think it went very well. I think it was an important day of yeah resistance and, and mourning, and I think it signified that very well, and I think it was well organised, and people that attended were, you know, so courteous. You know, we had to recruit some more marshals to manage people because there were so many people coming out, which is so inspiring. That was in the moment? 
Yeah, in the moment we realised we needed to recruit more people and so we just started sending people out to recruit people. And we, I think we recruited, you know, you know, 50, 100 people to help us out and people were so willing to just give their time to help us keep people safe. And yeah, and, and people would come back with all these new fresh faces from the crowd who were willing to volunteer at the snap of, you know, our fingers. And yeah, it was really inspiring. It shows you, I think, people are good and people want to help. And also the willingness of people to just put up their hand put on a red bit of tape on their arm and help us marshal, it shows you the power of solidarity. I think it shows you that you don't need to scratch below the surface very much for people to, you know, show that humans are very social creatures and, you know, everyone there was acting in solidarity with Indigenous people and were willing to put up their hand and help out. And I think, you know, that's partly why I'm a socialist. I think people can run the world democratically because I do fundamentally believe in people's ability to act cooperatively together. And that's what we did. Wow. That willingness to suddenly jump to a volunteer level on a pinch. It's interesting that you have that takeaway from it, that it, that it's more a, a universal sense of solidarity in, in working in a protest. There was a lot of young people at this mm-hmm. protest. And that was a remark that was shared by a lot of the organisers, a lot of the speakers, and as your lazy eye casts a glance to the gas station TV and you see Sky News right Mm -hmm. on the front, this seemingly wasn't a youth issue in the same way that, say, a climate rally was. Why do you think there was such a strong youth turnout? Well, I'll be annoying and disagree with the premise of your question. I don't think that climate change is a youth issue, although your question is obviously interpreting the right-wing media. So I wouldn't agree with their framing of climate change as a youth issue. I think climate change affects all of us. It does affect young people more because it's their future that's on the line. I think it more, you know, generally if you look at history, it shows you that, you know, often young people are generally more politically active, especially in times like now where, you know, really wider layers of society aren't, you know, rebelling, although I think more and more are, you know, I think we are living through a period of increased radicalisation, but... It's often, yes, students and young people that are first to move um, and support rallies and and protests and student protests and stuff. I think that's something that's gone throughout history, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years. This protest obviously had some significant logistical issues to it, namely the COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. And it handled them so well compared to a lot of other protests, not just for Invasion Day or anything even left-wing. There was a lot of right-wing protests that were organised really poorly Mm -hmm. through lockdown, and they had to suffer the consequences of that. What do you think is something that you can take away from the Invasion Day rally in terms of the organising structure and how it was run for future events? Hmm. I guess firstly I'd say, just touching on the right-wing protests, I think the fact that they you know, weren't often wearing masks and, you know, weren't social distancing and that kind of thing. I think it shows that, you know, they really represented a a tiny minority of society that had embraced a kind of toxic individualism and and conspiracy theories. And so I think that that flows on into their their rally. And our rally was a rally of um, resistance, solidarity and social justice. And so I think that's reflected in in the people that went and and how it was organised. I think it's a good thing to have marshals, at a rally, you know, keeping people safe. Um, it was really cool um, how well the training was run through Work Solidarity. I think they were using really effective 
organizing strategies of, of having the groups be fairly decentralized. And, you know, if communication was cut off, we could operate independently in the rally. You know, the security was very good. And I think for future rallies, when, when it's appropriate to have a large number of marshals and, and maybe we won't need so many in the future, you know, we, you know, we're living in a time of uncertainty, but having a really well-run event like that shows you we can keep protesting and we can keep in the streets and we can keep people safe. And I think that's very important for this year because I hope, you know, 2021 is the year of resistance and radicalism and people can keep, you know, getting out there. And I think having such a large protest be safe and well-organized shows that, you know, it's possible and, and, you know, rallies in the future, yeah, can be, can be safe, can be mass and can be responsible. Were there any cons from your perspective or any threats to the way that it was organized? Um, were there any points of weakness there? I, and it's genuinely quite hard to think of. You almost don't want to say it's such an inspiring event. It's hard to think of a critique. I guess my critique as an activist and socialist is like, you know, let's make it even bigger next time. You know, it was smaller because of COVID. I think that did, I think last year was about 80,000 people in Melbourne. This time it was probably about 10,000 people. So it was noticeably still huge, but still noticeably smaller. So I would want to see, as I always do, you know, rallies to be bigger, more well attended, more people getting out there, you know, protesting the government, you know, organizing in their workplace. You know, I always want more of a good thing. So that that would be my only criticism. Did any speakers or even explicit events really stand out to you on that day? You know, I'm partial to uh, Gary Foley's speech myself. You know, he's been an activist for so long around the left. He's so well respected, you know, whether you're a Trotskyist or an anarchist or whatever you are, you know, there was, you know, widespread respect for someone who's been around the left for many years, um, helped set up the tent embassy. He's very funny, like such a funny guy and so charismatic. I'm partial to a Gary Foley um, speech and a slash history lesson. It's always good. And yeah, I very much enjoyed that. Cool. Would you do it again? I would, absolutely. And I encourage people to, you know, participate in rallies in whatever way they feel comfortable. And I would certainly recommend people Google Worker Solidarity and um, come support rallies and strikes in the future. Do you think that the way that this protest was organised, and especially through what you've experienced in it, in marshalling it directly, is it enough to generate a plan for how other protests are organised? Is it is it that good of a success? I would say so, yeah. I feel like to have thousands of people flood the streets and have it done in a safe way, I think it worked very well. you want to add any particular comments or any extra takeaways that you had to this? No. You're looking at me like you want something. Um, oh, like, I like always a wait comment. three seconds after. <laughs> <laughs> it's always people oh, go, ah, God. Ah, um, ah, no. A little well. sign off, like, mm. um, <laughs> I guess I would just say to people, whatever time you have, get involved in, you know, whether it's organising, you know, at your workplace, in your union, whether it's coming out on the streets, you know, find the others, find the others, find the people in your union, find the activists on the ground, you know, throw your hat in the ring. And if you are, keep doing it. You know, tell your friends to get involved. You know, politics is a um, team sport, so and resistance is a team sport. So we, and we want more people. We want more recruits. So whether you can give a little or a lot, you know, it makes a lot of difference. So I think I would just encourage people to, yeah, get up, stand up, and all that good stuff. Five, 
four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. It's now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. appropriate for the morning sunrise. You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. My name's Jordan, here with Annie as well. Uh, just thought I'd 
chucking in a little bit of some Japanese music uh, entitled Entering Flight Museum. It's a bit of a spatial piece, but <laughs> I like it for the sunrise. <laughs> is it Japanese? Yes, yeah. Well, the artist was a virtual dream. Anyway, on the phone, we've got Darren Wallace, uh, who's here from uh, Save Lake Knox. Um, g'day, Darren. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty good. And uh, Annie, of course, is uh, here with me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, Annie. G'day. And uh, so, um, Darren... First up, what I want you to do is to explain to my listeners, or our listeners, uh, where Lake Knox is. Okay, so Lake Knox is, um, <clears throat> it's, a, uh, it's, it's in Knoxfield, um, could be described as Baronia even. Um, it's along Blind Creek, and there's the linear trail, a bike trail downstream of Scoresby Road, which connects, um, you know, several, several main roads there, Scoresby Road and, and Lewis Road. So it's, um, yeah, it's in Knox, the yeah. people's paradise. People's Paradise, and I'll tell you something else. Uh, it, it, uh, tell listeners that it's actually a man, a person-made lake, and uh, yep. it's sixty years old. But what's happened is that it's become this fantastic piece of wetland, uh, urban wetland. Yeah, that's right, and it's naturalised. Um, even though it is man-made, inverted commas, it's naturalised. So there's a there's a balanced ecology there now. There's you know there's aquatic vegetation that's in harmony with the aquatic life, the turtles. Uh, the birds and the surrounding environment. Yeah, which is kind of extraordinary. Now, in 2018, all of a sudden, this land, which is actually publicly owned, has now been rezoned by uh, development, Victoria Development, or what do they call themselves? Yes, Development, development Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> yeah, the, the state government's real estate agency, really, uh, their, their charter is to dispose of surplus, inverted commas, land, and... Uh, on this occasion, they, they propose residential, commercial development on the site, and they believe that the the, the lake is not fit for purpose, um, fit for their purpose. That is, it's certainly fit for the environment's purpose. But they're pretty keen to uh, basically fill it in, drain it, fill it in, do some building over the top of it. But it's okay, they tell us, because they're going to create more wetlands somewhere to offset the loss of this deep water specialist deep water lake and the associated rare endangered wildlife that goes with it. So let's look at that. So 450 residential properties and something like uh, replacing the high-value aquatic habitat after you uh, fill it, the lake in with a lake slash wetland stormwater treatment complex. Yeah, which on face value sounds fair enough, but the difference is these constructed water-sensitive urban designs, these wetlands, these stormwater treatments, they're shallow, they're ephemeral, and importantly, they do not provide habitat for specialist diving ducks like the blue-billed duck, which is the one duck species on this waterway that um, that really needs specialist protection and specialist habitat, and it's there for one reason and one reason only, and that it's in harmony with the environment. And the um, Lake Knox has, has got some quite deep sections, and this is what diving ducks are into. They feed, they feed underwater, they feed off the floor of the, the wetland and you don't get that when you plant out uh, you know, a water-sensitive urban design slash constructed wetland that harvests stormwater. Now, it's interesting because uh, it would seem for anybody who lives in an urban environment that having such a uh, oasis of natural occurrence would be something that you would uh, protect with, with oh, all, all, all your life. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely highly desirable. And it's, it's, it's astonishing that Development Victoria can't get their head around the fact that the community love this wetland, they love the wildlife that goes with it, and they don't want it drained and filled in and replaced with some substandard stormwater treatment. Darren, if I can take a devil's advocate position, uh, there's definitely an argument to be made that if Lake Knox is a man-made lake, then we have... Well, yeah, you know, that's well said, actually. If it is a person-made lake, if it is, you know, artificial, then surely we have the right to destroy it as well as create it. It's a bit of an insidious take, but what's your response to that? Uh, My response to that is very simple. Um, That that may be on face value the argument, but there's 60 60 years of uh, natural processes that have, have caused this this water body to become in sync with the environment. So I, I think we um, I think we lose the right to start to destroying things that have got, uh, you know, environmental values that have, have developed of their own accord. You know, this is not like, um, you know, it's not like buying a fridge from a white goods store where you, you buy it and it doesn't change and then you throw it out and it doesn't work any longer. This system works. So that would be my argument, mm. uh, counter-argument to that, Jordan. Yeah, now, uh, it's a, there's a very key point in this. Uh, in people's minds, uh, and it's it's sort of like greenwashing, isn't it, where there's this thing called offset diverse, uh, di- um, biodiversity and e- ecological, this idea that you're going to get uh, uh, remove this lake, then recreate something else which is going to offset the loss of biodiversity and the ecological uh, losses by... Yeah, we'll, we'll put cr- wetlands somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> the, yeah, humans right. can do this. But in actual fact, a report, a recent report uh, that I presume your group has, uh, has commissioned ha- shows quite clearly that there's huge flaws in uh, this argument. Yeah, def- most definitely. And, and the, the report that Professor Paul Boone prepared, I should say, was... Um, came out of a crowdfunding activity of, uh, of which 132 individuals uh, contributed financially during a lockdown and a, and a time of some financial stress to raise the thousands of dollars to engage um, Professor Paul Boone, who's incidentally been working on wetland systems for the last 30 years and is an expert on ecology and the management of inland wetlands and often provides advice to statutory authorities and Melbourne Water and others. And yet he, f- he found that the Development Victoria proposal, when he assessed it, was, was scientifically questionable, that it, uh, it, it had ecological, ecological guarantees that were unfounded. Uh, it had no key performance indicators and no one had really worked out, you know, who's going to maintain this, this inverted commas, a new system. And the, um, the science favours the retention of the lake and the enhancement of the existing lake rather than its destruction. Which leads beautifully. You must have done this kind of re- uh, interview before. But... Oh well, look. I, if, if you want me to declare that, yes, I, I, I've done a little bit of work on three uh, MDR in, uh, in the Hills on community radio. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll take. I'll tell you something, Darren. There is an alternative plan, isn't it? You, you guys are actually offering an alternative plan. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So our alternative plan, uh, first and foremost, yeah, maintains the lake in situ as it is, um, offers some modifications to some of the issues that um, Development Victoria claim are so pivotal for the need to remove it. But they claim it's unsafe because it's steep, got steep banks. Um, oh. They also claim oh, that didums. it's unsafe... Sorry? Didums. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also claim that um, 
part of the the lake wall is structurally unsound, and the way they carry on it could fail and you know collapse any minute. Um, our argument to that is, if that's the case, uh, why do they why do they drive tractors over it when they mow the grass? And furthermore, why do they spray herbicide on the back of the lake wall uh, to kill grassy vegetation, which roots would hold together the soil if you know, if it was that perilous? So we. Um, we, we debunk all these these claims of theirs, and and you know I say if you can put a man on the moon 50 years ago, I think we can fix some steep embankments around the lake, and we can actually even fix the for the dam wall. In yeah. fact, Melbourne Water has been spending millions over the last few years uh, in Melbourne, bringing all water bodies with wall uh, dam walls and and lakes up to up to standards to make them safe. So it can be done. Basically, development Victoria are just being lazy. Uh, they're being pig-headed and they're also being, um, you know, they're, they're insulting the community's aspirations and desires. So what's the state of play at the moment? They are very close to submitting an application to the Knox City Council um, for endorsement of their development proposal. So that's, I suppose, that that's the next challenge, the next argument to, to have. Uh, very fortunately, Knox City Council, it's, it's councillors, new councillors, um, uh, out of the nine of them, Nine, uh, out of the nine of them, yeah, eight of them are women, many newly elected, and, and the new council's taken quite an interest in this proposal, and um, we look forward to Development Victoria putting forward its application to council so council can tease out some of the issues that the community's been raising over the last two years, and, and we're confident that um, with the advice of Professor Paul Boone, with the advice of other specialists we've had, and... The councillors understanding the sentiment of the community, um, you know, we're optimistic we're going to get a good outcome with respect to modifications to develop Victoria's aspiration to drain and destroy the lake. Given that you're, you have a bit of uh, spiritual optimism there, uh, do you see something in the council on a particular political bent that sort of warrants that? Uh, especially, you know, um, actually, no, I'll, I'll let you speak on that front, yeah. I see common sense from, from the Knox City Council. That's what I see. Um, okay. I, I see a council that is prepared to look at both sides of the story. And, and I also see a council that hopefully doesn't appear to, um, you know, follow in the steps of, you know, the way Development Victoria operate, it's like an episode out of the ABC series Utopia, uh, Working Dog and Big Cheerio to Rob Sitch this morning. Um, this is how they operate. They are... They are just so single-minded about their approach to uh, the way they want to do it, and it's it's quite extraordinary that they've they've been so um, been so. You know, the, the community sentiment for the support and retention of this lake is overwhelming. I just we don't understand why they can't see it. Well, now uh, you'll go to the council, and then you'll have to probably deal with the state government. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And look, we've, we've been dealing with the state government and. Uh, some of its elected representatives uh, and and people in opposition all along the way. I, I, I can kind of understand at the stage the politicians don't want to get too involved, but there's a point in the very, very near future where they're going to have no option to get involved because um, depending on what happens with the application to Knox City Council, if it, if it doesn't go sort of favourably in terms of the environment, well, um, you know, the, the campaign continues. The, the fight, you know, the fight will continue. The fight's on. Here, here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thanks very much for having me. Good yeah, luck, no. Darren. Hello, this is Virginia from the 3CR Garden Show. We are back live to the airwaves. 
every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. There are some changes. Sadly, Pam has retired at the garden show and will be sorely missed. But Stephen and I are excited to be hosting the show and we have many old favourites and some new voices. So tune in for the usual fabulous gardening advice. 855 on the AM dial, 3CR digital or 3cr.org.au. Every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. COVID permitting. Look forward to your company. Cheers. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. And um, I guess I, I would like to, you know, have a few minutes to have a chat about the GameStop saga, which has been kind of doing the rounds for a while now. And I'm sure everyone has, you know, you're all familiar with the story and you've probably heard this well, bit you may to not death, be, you know. so... so let me give you a 30 second rundown. Hedge funds took out a massive short position, which is where you essentially bet that a stock reaches... Oh, hold on. You good? Yeah, <laughs> where you essentially bet oh, the, the pleasures of live radio. You essentially bet that a stock reaches a certain value. And this short position was against a company called GameStop. Redditors on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets saw this, bought a crap ton of stock in response. And because this short failed, fund managers liquidated billions so literal billions in losses while the merry band of Redditors gets rich on the side. And this story kind of awoke something in a lot of people. Throughout the week, a lot of people realized how easy it is to manipulate the stock market and thus manipulate the rich. Now that the common man knows that the wealthy do not have a monopoly on manipulating the market, Wall Street figures have crawled out of their ivory towers to advocate for... Drum roll, regulation. When was the last time you heard someone on Wall Street advocate for more financial regulation of all things? Um, and, and now they want it at this out of any other time. Uh, and, and there's been so much fallout happening recently through this. Um, in the masculine voice is a journalist at CNBC talking to the CEO of NASDAQ, Adina Friedman. Annie, if you want to go ahead. One of the things that we're talking about is maybe misinformation and, and uh, pump and dumps, and it's occurring on social media again. It just, I, I'm wondering whether it's part of the same problem, the type of regulation that, that, uh, that we finally need to, uh, to consider. And like I said, I, we should always have a light touch with regulation, but you're, you're seeing the way things can get started. Again, this is different. Maybe it's Reddit. Maybe it's not Facebook. But you're seeing the, 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 the same situation. The, the, at this point, it's not about an election. It's not about a, uh, an insurrection. But there are interesting things happening that, that seem to be spawned to some extent or at least, a, at least blown out of proportion by social media again, Adina. Well, I, I do think, though, that as we look at these new technologies that are there available to everyone, including investors, I, I think it's also important for regulators to understand that, you know, manipulation is manipulation, whether it's happening through a new technology medium or it's happening through traditional mail. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of making sure that we understand what the behavior is, what's underpinning the behavior, and working appropriately with the regulators to, to, uh, to manage the situation. Working appropriately with regulators to manage the situation. Don't yeah, you love side, that? Yeah, side of day on. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same sort of language you hear about like crowd control and rioting. You know, we're managing the situation on the ground. Um, and this was the CEO of NASDAQ calling for more regulation. What? 
So, but this wasn't just the only experience. And I think I wanted to have a really closer look at all the fallout that happened from all of this. So I did some more diving. Arthur Levitt Jr., do you know this man, Annie, by any chance? No, he sounds a like there's an actor. Who's okay, gonna... so he was the former SEC chairman who presided over the dot-com bubble. So he, this guy ah. was responsible for all of that. He was appointed by Bill Clinton, and, you know, that period of presidency was definitely notorious for a massive deregulation of the American stock market. So this guy, you know, he's very, very, very pro-deregulation, especially financial deregulation. Anyway... Levitt wrote a piece in Bloomberg calling for a, quote, full agency investigation into online stock trading platforms, end quote, and said that, quote, social media is taking advantage of users' behavioral psychology and pushing them into dangerous territory. All right, Levitt, if I ignore your obvious bias, I don't disagree with that, but... Doesn't it tell you everything that people like Levitt and Friedman want to investigate this now, of all times, you know, when, when finally some retail traders, some working class people who wanted to take out an attack on a hedge fund, the moment that that happens, oh, no, we can't have that. Absolutely not. But it is not just these two people. And I've kept finding more and more stuff. Um, White House Press Secretary Janet Yellen said that she was monitoring the situation. Elizabeth Warren tweeted out that we need more regulation in the exchange. The state securities regulator for the state of Massachusetts said GameStop trading should be halted for 30 days. And there were other stocks involved. Uh, some people raised some discussions about another stock called AMC. Um, so, it, you know, it's not just exclusively GameStop. And I think it's very reactionary response in its were, own way. Were there well. any negatives to for the actual investors in GameStop? Oh, look, uh, yeah, they lost a ton of money because the short position was so aggressive. And I'll, I'll, I'll raise that in a, a tiny bit. Uh, and even the SEC itself said that they were working with regulators to assess the situation, review the activities and other participants involved. Right. It's such a double standard overall. So you want to look over you want to overlook crimes of actual influencers who rig the stock market on a daily basis and yet force regulation when the smallest of traders gets a slight edge in. And there is this recurring theme within, you know, broader exchanges that when hedge funds manipulate markets and screw over workers in the process, or when Wall Street requires billions of dollars in bailouts, and we see this mired in our own stock exchanges as well, there isn't any call for more regulation. But when a couple hundred people make a bit of money at the expense of a billionaire hedge fund, up oh, too much, got to shut it down, can't happen anymore, not happening. And it's oligarchy. The oligarchy reacted in the media, in the government, and in corporate leaders. Um, if you, oh, and, you know, just to address your comment as well, the position that was taken by some of these hedge fund managers was a short of 140% of GameStop's stock value. So they wanted the stock value to go into the negative, right? Where is the regulation on that? That's such an aggressive position. Melvin Capital required a $3 billion infusion of cash for whatever reason. And that was one of the hedge funds that did invest in this stock. But as best as I can tell, even just, you know, back of the hand math, 
they've lost in the order of tens of billions of dollars because that short position failed. You know, ten ten so, billion so, so dollars. Ga- so ga- right? GameStop. So GameStop is GameStop uh, just a uh, it's a hedge fund or no no no. So Game- is GameStop is just a retail um, video game trading uh, group. It's the same way. It's very similar to EB Games in this case. All right. So you're so investing that, simply... in a company that makes yep. Uh, video games. Yep. Yep. And of course, they'd have had a tough time through um, the massive retail slump in America. It was only fair that this company looked like it was going to liquidate or go into the negative, um, but 140% of the company's value? I mean, come, you know, give me a break. And to think that, you know, funds like uh, Melvin Capital can throw around several billions of dollars in super aggressive positions, then proceed to so lose what, you know, are you, are billions. You, are you saying oh. that So you, what, what you have in the market is a whole lot of uh, funds that are, held, are holding on to rich people's money, generally speaking, and then they hedge bets. It's like going to the – this is what – like going to the races. They decide to put a little bit of money on this and a little bit mm. of money on that and all the rest of it. And when and they manipulate the market by making the uh, prices go up and down so that when they sell and buy, they uh, have enough – cash, yep. uh, enough shares yeah. to be able to make a profit out of them. Yeah, so they're, they're constantly manipulating the market. Yeah. And GameStop is not just the only example of this. I went back to uh, a piece that I had written actually for my university um, in March 2020. There is this great example of such a double standard. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman, just, you know, large investor, just to condense a long story short about the guy, goes on CNBC and gives this emotional heartthrob interview to say hell is coming and that hotel stocks would go to zero March 2020, right? That interview caused a panic sell of stocks. The timing is so obvious. From the moment that interview finished, stocks for hotels in the US just started blitzing. And that was mired in our own exchanges yeah, yeah, here yeah, in Australia. Yeah. It's a manipulation of the market. So anybody who but wants to buy, this, he this. then goes and buys the shares for very Yeah, months right after months. that interview, yeah. Ackman bought billions in dollars of the stock as it hit rock bottom. Right. And he pocketed $2 billion in bets against the market as it was crashing. And this is all this has all been widely reported, obviously over a staggered period of time. So we're talking, you know, March to September 2020. He helped spawn that crash and then profited massively no at the regulation of, his of smaller traders. Yeah. And the SEC conveniently goes blind. Like, what? what is this double standard? Now, I think it's called class. Oh, <laughs> gee, goodness me. You're talking class? Oh, you know, I thought race divided people around here. No, no. no hang on. So there's got to be some kind of silver lining to the GameStop story. Like, what do we actually take out of this? Um, what what should we be advocating for? To America's credit, their markets do have some limits on automated trading. And these uh, these regulations are called frequency limits. It's a regulatory piece that it says... It sounds like people who uh, go to gambling dens and yeah. need to go to the outside to use the ATM. Yeah, and continue to use that analogy for this. Um, frequency limits are a regulatory piece that says there is a maximum amount of trades that an automated system can make over a given period of time. And it can be a very small given period of time, like a few seconds, or it can be over a very long period of time, like across a day's trading. This is quite weak as far as stock market regulation goes. And I presume this was supposed to be the big regulatory stick 
that came out of the big bust in 2008. It was. Um, it it prevents some, well, it goes some way to preventing flash crashes and hyperinflations in a market. So it tends to stratify GDP statistics a bit more, but it's so nominal. Um, personally, and I think this is something that you can take away out of this whole GameStop fiasco, I am a strong advocate for something called circuit breakers. Circuit breakers are a flexible piece of legislation and it has a variety of interpretations in its use. The usual style is to make circuit breakers, which is a piece of technological hardware, mandatory to install within a gateway computer itself. Um, This breaker will shut down either a trader or a whole exchange, if needed, again, depending on the regulation, under certain conditions. Because the process is automated, it means that the enforcement for it is immediate and time sensitivity is a big deal in automated exchanges, down to the millisecond, easily. It's stronger than a trading delay. It's an effective regulatory standard and unlike frequency limits, it has a built-in enforcement because it is controlled by a machine regulated by the government. Just something to think about there. Um, Is this any good for society anyway hell no all right speculation is gambling straight up but it's only gambling if you are not part of the house or should i say if you're not manipulating the market part of the fear of entering don't drink your scotch at the right club yeah exactly and part of the fear of entering the market is instilled by people who don't want you to upset the manipulation of it I guess that's one of the reasons why they use the type of language they use so that it's impossible to actually get a grip. I mean, you Oh, yeah, like people are entering dangerous territory and you need to seriously consider a broker. You know, you don't know what you're doing, that kind of thing. You don't know Gee, the language. Great. No, no, you can totally get into Just it. Just give Absolutely. me your money. Yep, yep, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Um, if you want some homework or some stuff to look up out of all of this, you know, all of this fallout... Look up democratization of finance. Look up financial transactions tax and capital gains tax. Look up circuit breakers. And I, I think one of, my, one of my good friends and a conductor, Emerson Hurley, had this takeaway, which I think is a great way to end my thoughts. Quote, The GameStop affair is an example of accelerationist tactics. The stock market is based on a contradiction. It's chaotic, but the wealthy tries to control it. Reddit showed that by increasing chaos, you can make the system more difficult to control and maybe make spaces for genuine freedom. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial.
You're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast on this lovely Saturday morning. And That's it. Yep. And yeah. uh, we just got news that uh, Asia Pacific Currents is back live to this week. You should celebrate a fabulous Woo! program on 3CR. So good. Following Solidarity Breakfast. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, now we're going to move on to a little speech by Samira, who was a woman who was at the uh, demo outside uh, Treasury place on Tuesday. It's now becoming a regular event. They did use a uh, sound system, not very loud, and the police were terribly, terribly uh, nice. There were at least, (laughs) there were about 10 police, which was pretty uh, strange, but of course, always peaceful. Hello, everyone. Um, Okay, Uh, I'll pay my respect to the real owners of this land by acknowledging that we are standing on stolen land. So, 60 of our friends are free. That's a good thing. Still 24 guys are remaining in Melbourne, and there are 120 in Brisbane, in Kangaroo Point. So, our home offer, Minister Peter Dodden said, without like zero compassion, without any compassion, it's cheaper for people to be in the community than in hotel or detentions. Hello, what took you so long, Peter? <laughs> and apparently they are not threat. There you go. They're not threat. And the assessment has been made by the experts. So at least we know they're not, you know, murderers. They're not going to murder us. We're all safe. <laughs> okay. If they are free, it's because of you guys, because of the pressure we put on the government, they didn't know what to do with us. So, good on you and congratulations to all of you and the fight is still going and going. Did you know, when I was thinking, when I was writing this, I was thinking of some numbers. Did you know, between 2013 and 2016, over four years only, the government policies against refugees cost a total of nine, six, billion dollars. This includes the cost of detention centers, both in Manus Island and Nauru, as well as government's policies to return the boats back. 9.6 billion dollars in four years. Shame! In 2016 to 2017, one year only, the government has spent a total of four, six billion on border protection. One year only, four, six billion dollars. The figures include 1.5 billion for onshore detentions, 1.8 billion for the offshore management of so-called illegal boat arrivals, and 1.6 billion on border enforcement. That's only one year. And how much was the cost to allow Asylum seekers to actually live in community. Guess, only $12,000. No billions, no millions, $12,000 a year for one person to live in the community. It has costed us $1 million each for every detainee imprisoned in Manus Island. Every single of them costed $1 million for us since 2012. And this is according to the parliamentary library, so I'm not making these numbers up. So since 2012, our government 
spent $1 million on Danush <laughs> to protect us from him. $1 million to protect us from Ramzi, from Farhad. Remember what Peter Dutton said? More refugees would steal Aussie's job and will sit on Medicare and welfare. What welfare? They're not even being given any welfare. What welfare? So they have no satellite support, no right to study, no welfare. Shame on you, Peter Dutton. Shame on you, Scott Morrison. Shame on you, Daniel Andrew, because you are being silent. Shame on Labour government, because they're not being a real opposition. Be a real opposition and support these guys. This is happening right in Melbourne. Oh yes, I forgot to say that. They've been given $307. 307, not six, not eight, seven. That's important. They didn't even round it up to 310 because that would be too much pressure on us. <laughs> that would be financially hard. They have no satellite support, no right to study, no welfare. Shame on you, Peter Dutton. Shame on you, Scott Morrison. Shame on you, Daniel Andrew, because you are being silent. Shame on Labour government because they're not being a real opposition. Be a real opposition and support these guys. This is happening right in Melbourne. Oh yes, I forgot to say that. They've been given $307. 307, not six, not eight, seven. That's important. They didn't even round it up to 310 because that would be too much pressure on us. <laughs> That would be financially hard. So they've been given $307 with a couple of weeks of accommodation. They are not even being given food. They have to cook. They don't even know how to cook anymore. <laughs> they don't even have anything. So they have like three, max four weeks of accommodation. And after that, they're all going to face Homelessness, we don't want that happen. We love these people. They're all, they're all our friends. They're all like our brothers, our sisters. I think this might be one of those things you read about in books. And I'm sure it's fine and everyone gets out alive if you read between So close your eyes and 
was a sweet piece from uh, the Rosie Burgess band, Sleeping in Cars. And uh, more people, of course, are sleeping in cars these days, uh, mm. if they've got a car to sleep in. And uh, <laughs> uh, now um, we're going to go uh, on to uh, a piece that I got from uh, uh, the book room. Uh, it's in a, a group that are uh, running Zooms. Uh, they have launched a podcast. It's a monthly author talks podcast, and uh, it's run by the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. And uh, we today uh, we've just got this little excerpt from uh, the first one that they had pod- podcast, which is uh, of Tony Birch reading from his book The White Girl. It's uh, and with a few reflections. So this, this book, you write about the ties and the relationships between Aboriginal women and their daughters and their granddaughters. Uh, first of all, why did you choose to write through the lens of uh, women? And how do you do your research to find Odette's voice inside of you, the voice of the grandmother caring for her granddaughter? I, I've, it's just, I could believe that it was Odette. It was a woman grandmother talking. How were you able to, to achieve that? Well, you, you never met my grandmother. Um, <laughs> I think firstly, the reason I chose to, to focus on women mm. is that um, I had done research, in fact, that, so I worked as a historian. I, you know, I, I did a PhD in history and, and taught Aboriginal history at Melbourne University. And one of my main research projects was to look at the way that Aboriginal women had been, you know, the really strong grassroots activists in Australia for all of the 20th century, a lot of the 20th century. And part of their um, political campaigning was around letters, was around writing. So I'd done a lot of research on Aboriginal women's writing. So the sorts of um, things that they were demanding, you know, caring for their children, not having their children stolen from them, et cetera, I knew that. Uh, But more importantly, I think that, one is I wanted to focus on women because I see women in my life um, and particularly older women as being really heroic and very courageous and leading our families and communities. Mm-hmm. Two is that you're, you're exactly right that in choosing to have women as the, the central characters of the book, I then had to make a decision about their relationship to colonial violence. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision well before I started the novel that although, you know, the violence is on the periphery of this novel all the time, we know the history that these women are dealing with and we know the potential for violence is is ever-present in Odette and Sissy's life. Mm. But I didn't want it to really penetrate in the sense that I wanted the novel to be a novel about love and tenderness and in a really tactile, physical way, as much as a spiritual way. So, you know, everyone has talked about the what are called the bath scenes in the novel. And I wanted to convey the, 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 the beauty and, and touch between Odette and Sissy. And really, to be honest, that is drawing on, yeah, I didn't find it hard to write with women and, and girls as the central characters because I was drawing on my own history and experience of, of being surrounded by women in my life. So yeah, my grandmother and my mother, um, aunties, uh, my sisters, and I have four daughters, and they're they're adults now, and all of the ways that they express love is ways that I've experienced, and and it doesn't have to be by the way through women. So today, I each week 
I take care of one of my grandchildren and today it was my grandson, Archie, who's two. And, you know, it's the same. He loves to rub my back when I'm hugging him. So I was just carrying him. From, oh, he fell over and I picked him up and I was taking him to the other room and I was holding him and he just involuntarily almost just starts rubbing your back. So I love that. And I suppose learning that from women, it's also something for me is important as a man so mm. that, um, so that my, my love for my grandchildren is, is, is physical yep. as well. And um, so it's about how I think physical touch really matters. And as we find out in the novel, it matters to women such as another character, Wanda, who, who doesn't experience the touch of women in her life, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and caressing. Yeah. And it really almost destroys her. One of the issues that I would say to my work is that all of my writing, and yeah, the, the word is often discussed as political in the sense that all of my writing deals with the issues of oppression in different ways and in a way that really i want to express to readers that the people on the margins of society need to be central we need to put a focus a lens on people who we ignore and look at their lives in a more enriched way so that um i'm i'm really interested in the people that we ignore and when i say we even as aboriginal people we can ignore people outside our communities that are equally desperate so i'm interested in my sense of this is if any person is going to act with injustice against another person, they, you must do it with a full knowledge of who that person is. And it's why the notion of silence and a form of censorship is ever present in Australia. Now, you're, I think our, our viewers will know this, that one of the things that has happened in Australia with the terrible violence against refugees and asylum seekers is to try to make these people invisible, to put them in places where we can't contact them. Mm -hmm. There's been real attempts to not see the faces of these people, to not know the names of these people, to not hear the words of these people, to not know their stories. And my view is if you're going to imprison a person and you're going to torture them and treat them in, much, in such as an inhuman way, you need to look at that person in the face directly and know who they are and then can you still act? And I think yeah. we have allowed these horrible actions to occur in this country by making people invisible. So my view of issues of, of solidarity are that if, if we, we focus on people who require justice, I hope and think that more of us will, will realise that what happens to people like Aboriginal people, like refugees and asylum seekers, like people from your own community, your own nation, I think people will be moved to not act or to act in a, in a way of solidarity. And I suppose then to say instances of that, I think that what I try to say to young people, and I'm not, I'm not going down the track of getting into a heavy discussion on you know, so-called identity politics, but we now have, I think, you know, in the Western world, there's been a move to, I think, sometimes quite segmented identities. And I think some of those are empowering. So we know that in communities that have really come to the fore and demanding, demanding of, of, mm. of you know, um, Western society that people be recognised, I understand that. But in the end, if we're going to tackle the really major issues us we need to build solidarity and networks across those communities and act together so 
you know, I saw your lovely photos at the Invasion Day rally and, you know, to see the, to see other people than Aboriginal people on those days is absolutely vital to us to know that things are moving, you know, think there is an energy there. And likewise, of course, um, you know, in regard to thinking of issues like um, refugees and people seeking sanctuary, people seeking um, support, it's one of the um, major issues that I've been involved in um, in recent years. So, uh, so yeah. to put it just directly, as an Aboriginal person, if there are crimes committed against other communities on Aboriginal land, I need to take responsibility for that. And a lot of Aboriginal people think that way. When we see what's happening to other communities on our land, we see mm -hmm. that as an injustice that we have to speak out about. For people who haven't read the book, the only thing we'll say briefly, it's a book about primarily the relationship between Odette Brown and her granddaughter Sissy. And it's about Odette's um, fight and struggle to protect her granddaughter who is under threat of removal from her grandmother by a policeman, a new policeman who comes into the town of Dean, a, a man called Sergeant Lowe. And more widely, the book is about the attacks on Aboriginal people and the attempts to steal children from their family during this terrible period um, of post-war Australia when mm -hmm. so many thousands of children were, were removed. I'm just going to read a short scene that I've never read um, aloud before. And it's a scene where Odette meets another Aboriginal woman, Dolores. And Dolores talks about the experience of losing her own children. And the reason why I've chosen this is that while, as I said, that essentially this is a book about love and tenderness, I've decided to read this scene because I also want to make the point for our listeners and readers that these crimes are terrible crimes and they had a devastating effect on the women and men who were affected by them. So it's a very straightforward scene where Dolores is telling Odette what happened to her children, two daughters. The first time the welfare lady set eyes on my babies, Dolores said, I knew I had no help of keeping them. She took one hand away from the edge of the table and slammed it against her chest, alarming Odette. From that day on, that bitch followed us round like a bloodhound. My eldest girl, Colleen, she was the first to go. We'd put her in the local school, a Catholic school. My husband thought it might work in our favour, putting on the God Act. He was in the Merchant Navy. He'd been away at sea six weeks, and then his pay stopped coming to me from the company. I never knew it at the time, but he jumped ship and took off with one of the girls. I haven't laid eyes on him since. Dolores took a worn handkerchief out of the sleeve of her cardigan and wiped her nose. I ran out of money in no time. No sooner was I spotted in the line outside the house of charity that Colin was taken. They picked her up from school. Did you fight it? Odette asked. Fight? There was nothing I could do. Dolores put her fist into her mouth and bit down on a knuckle to stop herself from sobbing. You know what the nun at the school said when I fronted her? Do you want to know what she said? Odette shook her head. She said, this is best for you. We're doing this to help you as much as help your daughter. I wanted to spit in that woman's face. I went straight home and pulled a case out of the cupboard. I poked some air holes in it with a screwdriver and put my baby girl Iris in that case with her clothes. Dolores took a deep breath and then we took off. Odette wasn't certain what she'd just been told. 
Did you say you put your daughter in a suitcase? Dolores wiped her nose and laughed hysterically. I sure did. That was my plan. She laughed again. It didn't work out though. We only got as far as the bus station. I was ready to jump on any bus that would get us out of the city. I didn't care where it was heading. And then bang, the case sprung open and poor little Iris, she fell out. Dolores looked down as if the child was on the floor at her feet. She stood up and began circling the table. Odette wanted her to stop both her manic pacing and the story, which she didn't want to hear, but Dolores couldn't stop. I mean, it was funny, really funny, she cried. We both laughed. My beautiful baby girl, she was giggling, and I thought I was going to wet my pants. Dolores walked over to the back door and looked outside, concerned she was being overheard. I hadn't noticed that there was a copper right there. He'd been a couple of footsteps behind us the whole time, writing a ticket for some fellow who'd parked his car illegally. The copper saw what happened, and I knew we were in trouble. I knew it but I couldn't stop laughing. Everyone waiting for the buses, they all thought I'd gone mad. After Iris was taken away, I was put into one of those hospitals, you know, for sick people. And by then I was mad. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. And you're back with Jordan and Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And just to quickly finish up the program, we've got Jacob from uh, Socialist Alliance. G'day, Jacob. How are you? Hey, Jacob. Hi, yeah. Good morning. Now, uh, Socialist Alliance has got a a talk coming up, uh, How Capitalism Causes Racism. Do you want to give our listeners an idea of what's going to happen and the date and the time? Yeah, so we are organising the forum... um, in response to a kind of number of things, um, basically there has been the kind of ongoing campaign to free the refugees um, at the Park Hotel. And then there has also been, we just got, um, Invasion Day has just recently happened and um, we sort of wanted to um, host a bit of a discussion um, that tries to kind of bring those kind of things kind of together, both the, um, the struggle for Aboriginal rights and racism towards refugees by basically trying to kind of make a bit of a, raise a bit of discussion that has a bit of a systematic critique of where actually, where racism actually comes from. You know, because quite often um, racism is sort of almost like depicted as almost like this individual failing, um, like some prejudice against kind of difference. Um, But for this kind of, um, for this discussion, we're actually trying to raise it to the idea that actually capitalism um, is intertwined with um, the development of racism. And we have like a whole um, panel of speakers that will be exploring that question from different angles. So what you're talking about is the difference between prejudice and systemic racism. Yep, exactly. (laughs) And uh, who are the speakers? Who's on your panel? Well, one of the speakers is actually going to be myself, um, I'm going to be sort of focusing a bit of on a kind of Marxist sort of analysis on um, the development of kind of racism, giving really a kind of clear kind of socialist perspective on where we kind of think racism comes from and how it's intertwined with the development of capitalism. And why it's so um, effective our, as, a bi- oh, as a beating stick. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the next, the next speaker we have is Marianne McKay, and she's a Nongar activist um, based in um, WA, 
Um, she's, an, um, she's been heavily involved in, you know, the struggle for land rights um, against mining projects in the WA and has also been a consistent fighter for Aboriginal rights um, for the better part, of, uh, better part of the decade. And she is also sort of um, a candidate, um, a, a lead candidate for, for Socialist Alliance in the du- upcoming WA state election. Oh, well, OK. Is that going to be by uh, link or is she actually here? Oh, no, it's going to be by link. I mean, you can't. I mean, there's no way that they... I mean, considering the recent border closures, I don't think anyone was able to get... To, yeah, you're yeah, yeah, right. That's, sorry, that's all good. No, that's yeah. right. Sorry, I was yeah. almost shocked then. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, our next speaker, um, who's someone who's actually quite a frequent guest on many free CR programs, um, but Lavinia, um, who's an organiser with the Migrant Workers Centre. Oh, of course. And yeah. she's going to be sort of talking about, you know, um, the impacts of kind of racism kind of today, uh, especially on migrants and how it's sort of ultimately kind of linked with the capitalist system. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. So what? Uh, where is it going to be at and uh, what date and time? So it is going to be um, on Tuesday the 9th of February, so this coming Tuesday at 6.30pm. And um, it's going to be conducted, the forum will mostly be conducted via Zoom, um, so you can get the Zoom link details if you go on the Socialist Alliance Melbourne Facebook or alternatively go on the greenleft.org.au and go to the activist calendar, which is um, if you look on the website, there's a, on the top on the top right there is this um, calendar looking thing. Um, and if you can look um, for Tuesday the 9th of February, you can get all the details there. We will also be having some limited in-person attendance uh, but it's obviously it's pending kind of COVID kind of restrictions. If there's any new developments happening with Victoria, if that happens, we'll have to um, cancel the in-person element, which is, will be at Level 5, uh, our resistance centre, which will be at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Um, if there are any listeners who happen to be listening from Sydney today, um, there will also, um, also be a hook-in point from our office on forward slash... 22 to 36 Mountain Street in Oldsmore, New South Wales. Thanks for uh, talking to us, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Yep, no problem. Hi, thanks. Uh, and that's the end of the program. Pretty and, much. Yep, and uh, it's been a good day, and uh, hopefully you'll all have uh, a better day. You know, we started off the uh, process for you to have a great day, and uh, if you have any uh, wiseness on in your head, you will stop and listen to Asia Pacific Currents, which oh, is yes. coming up next. It's You're so a bit good of a to fan, see them in Jordan. the studio. Yeah, oh, I just I love Asia Pacific Currents. I was out there fanboying with the two producers a little earlier on. <laughs> no shame whatsoever. <laughs> no, well, there you go. Um, coming, uh, we we uh, t- talked to uh, Tom, who was uh, had a personal experience of being a marshal at the extraordinary Invasion Day mm. event this year in Melbourne. Uh, we talked to uh, Darren Wallace from Save Lake Knox, a piece of important uh, environmental uh, environment in the urban landscape. Yep, I ran a, a small piece uh, really unpacking the fallout from the GameStop fiasco. And uh, then we went to a small pre-record from Samira uh, doing a demonstration outside Treasury Place. And um, then we went back to Tony Birch for the book room event. Um, that Which, was harrowing stuff. By I know, the way. took I your breath away. Chance, I know but... we didn't have enough time to leave Hell. that silence for uh, a reflection on that piece because it's, it's extraordinary. The book is the white girl, and uh, mm. really uh, anything that uh, Tom. Uh, 
uh, Tony Birch is a really uh, uh, interesting and uh, personable guy. He has a lot of interesting things to say and uh, he is definitely a citizen of the world. Mm, absolutely. And uh, once again, thanks to, Jake, to uh, Jacob uh, for coming on and just giving us a little chat. See you next week, Annie. Yep, that's right. We're going to go out with uh, Because I'm Awesome. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.